Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dwayne. Good morning to those of you that uh, are here today and those of you that uh, are uh, watching us uh, live stream. Uh, appreciate you all joining together with us today, and uh, we look forward to a good time in the, the Word today. Well, Dwayne just read for us a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, and uh, those verses are asking us a question. I think those verses are asking us a very, very important question. And the question is this, do I want to live a life that matters? I mean, just process that for a moment. Do I really want to live a life that matters? Maybe we could say it this way, do I want the conversations that I have with people around me, people in my family, people at work, at school, people in my neighborhood, my community, do I, want to, do I want the conversations that I have with people to really be conversations that matter? Do I want what I believe? Do I want what I know to be true to matter? When I say that I believe something, when I say that I, I know something is true, when I, when I recognize it is truth, do I want that to really matter? We could say it this way. Do I want what I give of my time, my energies, my resources? Do I want what I I accomplish in my life? Do I really want that to matter? Well, in this text, we're told that if we want those things to matter, that we need to live a life of love. Because living a life of love is what will make our lives matter. They'll make our lives matter. Now, as we've been studying through these verses, we've learned that love acts with kindness. We've learned that love does not envy We learn that love practices humility and that love practices showing respect. We also have learned that love isn't easily angered. Now, this morning, we're going to begin by talking about love forgives. Love forgives. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, we simply read, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. In other words, love doesn't keep count 
of wrongdoings. Love doesn't uh, keep score. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. I've heard someone say this, sometimes when we argue, we get all hysterical. Other times when we argue, we get all historical. And we've all been there, right? We've all done that, right? Uh, We get into our argument, we get into a situation, and we bring up everything the other person has ever done wrong. And this text is telling us that love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep score. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love is not resentful. Love forgives. Love forgives. Now, to be honest, forgiveness may be the single most difficult act of love that we have talked about so far in this short series. So we're going to try to unpack a little bit of it today. I want you to understand that over the course of the next several minutes, as we talk about this subject of forgiveness, by no means are we going to be able to fully unpack this or fully understand this. We're going to kind of scratch the surface. And I recognize that forgiveness is a big topic and it's a hard topic. But just because it's big and it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't jump in and at least begin to unpack what biblical forgiveness is and what it's not. So let's talk about love forgives. And let's begin by mentioning four things that forgiveness is not. Biblically speaking, four things that forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not conditional. It is not conditional. In other words, true biblical forgiveness is not based upon somebody else's response. True biblical forgiveness is not earned. It's not deserved. It's not bargained for. It's not based on some promise that I'll never do it again. If you say to someone, I'll forgive you if, well, that's not biblical forgiveness. Forgiveness is not conditional. It's not conditional. Here's a second thought. Forgiveness is not minimizing the seriousness of the offense. Biblical forgiveness is not minimizing the seriousness of the offense. Biblical forgiveness is not saying it's no big deal. It's not saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's not saying it didn't really hurt, just forget about it. No, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not minimizing what happened. That's not forgiveness. Here's a third thought. Biblical forgiveness is not resuming a relationship without change. It's not resuming a relationship without change. We need to understand that on the part of the offended party, Forgiveness is, 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 is kind of our part in that reconciliation. Forgiveness is releasing the justice to God. The offended party releases that justice for what was done to God. But for the relationship to be restored, it's not just the part that the offended party has. It's also the part that the offending party has. And the offending party must do at least three things to begin to restore a relationship. Number one, They must demonstrate genuine repentance. There needs to be a change in behavior. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus said this. He said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So there needs to be some genuine repentance for a relationship to be restored. There needs to be some real change in behavior. Secondly, if a relationship is going to be restored, then the offending party needs to make restitution whenever possible for damages done. There needs to be the fruit of repentance, the evidence of repentance. 
Again, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So there should be some fruit bearing, should be some evidence, should be some, some, some outworkings of that repentance that is visible. There needs to be, there needs to be um, a demonstration of that genuine repentance and changed behavior and restitution being made wherever possible. And then third, the offender needs to rebuild trust by proving that they've changed over time. Relationships take time to be restored. They take time to be rebuilt. So if somebody wrongs you, maybe they repeatedly wrong you, then you are obligated as a follower of Christ before God to forgive that person, to release that vengeance, to release that justice to God. In other words, on the offended party's part, you take it out of your courtroom and you put it in a God's courtroom. You let God take care of justice. Justice is not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. And so the offended party must move that from their courtroom to God's courtroom. But the offended party is not responsible to instantly restore the relationship. For example, in a marriage situation, let's say there's an abusive husband who is battering his wife until she finally says no more. And she says, you're out of here. You're gone. And he comes back a couple of weeks later and he says, will you forgive me? Well, that wife needs to say to that person, I have forgiven you in the sense that I have turned that justice over to God. I have moved you out of my courtroom and I've put you into God's courtroom because vengeance and justice is his responsibility. So she can say, yes, I forgive you in that sense. But then if the offended party or the offending party says, well, okay, can I come back home? I believe that the answer is no, no. Because forgiveness is not resuming a relationship automatically. There needs to be a demonstration of genuine repentance. Whenever possible, there needs to be restitution for what is done. Rebuilding of trust needs to take place. And that takes time. That takes time. So biblical forgiveness is not conditional. Biblical forgiveness is not minimizing the seriousness of the offense. Biblical forgiveness is not resuming a relationship without change. Fourth, Biblical forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. It's not forgetting what happened. We've probably all used the phrase, and we've probably heard the phrase many, many times, forgive and forget. You know, be honest with you, I wish it was that easy. I literally wish we could open a little compartment in the back of our brain and pull out those memories and just literally trash them. So if it ever came up again, we'd go, what? What are you talking about? I've forgotten. I can't remember. But we can't do that. I mean, that sounds good, but the problem is it's impossible. But that's okay. It's okay. Why? Because there's something better. It's remembering, but realizing how God can bring good even out of bad. Thank God that even though this terrible thing happened to me, and even though it hurts a lot, and it's very real hurt, I believe that God will turn it around and use it for his glory and use it to accomplish his good purposes in my life. It's what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is all about when it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Doesn't say all things are good, but they'll work together for good. And what is that together for good all about? It's according to his good purposes. He'll accomplish his good purposes in our life as he works all those things together for good. So the key to forgiveness is not forgetting. The key to forgiveness is learning to see the offense through the lens of God's sovereign grace. That's the key. 
through the lens of how God can turn even bad things into good in our lives as we trust him to keep, that he will continue to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. So that's what forgiveness isn't. Well, if forgiveness is none of those things, then what is biblical forgiveness? What is biblical forgiveness? And again, I recognize that in just a few minutes here, we can't even begin to fully unpack biblical forgiveness. But let's just touch on kind of three steps that are involved what I think are genuine forgiveness, what is biblical forgiveness. Here's step number one, and we've already touched on this briefly, but it's relinquishing my right to get even. Biblical forgiveness is relinquishing my right to get even. The heart of forgiveness is releasing. The heart of forgiveness is relinquishing. The heart of forgiveness is we don't seek revenge. You know, you and I need to understand that seeking revenge can be done in a lot of different ways. It can be done in some very overt ways, but it also can be done in some very subtle ways. It can be done by our actions. It can be done by our words. It can be done just in our mind, in our thoughts, as we process all the ways we'd like to get back at that person and everything we want to do to that person if we just could do it. But forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, relinquishes my right to get even. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, if I give up my right to get even with someone who's hurt me, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, vengeance seems fair, doesn't it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, whoever said that forgiveness was fair? Whoever said that forgiveness was fair? I mean, let me ask you a couple of questions. Was it fair for Jesus Christ to leave heaven's glory and to become human and to come into our world? Was it fair for him to go through all of the abuse and everything he went through during the 30 plus years that he lived on this planet? Was it fair for him to go to the cross? Was it fair for him to bear the full brunt of God's wrath for every sin you and I and every man, woman, and child ever committed back historically and in the future? Was any of that fair? No, it wasn't fair. He was providing forgiveness. And forgiveness is not about fairness. Forgiveness is about relinquishing my right to get even. It's not about fairness. You see, one day God's going to have the last word. And in forgiveness, we release that last word to God. We release that justice to God. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Who can do a better job at justice than God? Who has more resources at his disposal than God? Who has more power at his disposal than God? Who has more ability to right wrongs than God? None of us do. None of us do. So we relinquish that justice to God because he's the one that can execute perfect justice. He has all the wisdom and power and resources available to do just that in his own way, in his own time. We relinquish that justice to God. And if we don't do that, if we don't do that, then more than likely, we're going to fall into a trap of bitterness, a trap of bitterness, which won't change our yesterday all it will do is mess up our today and ruin our tomorrows. When we hold on to that hurt, we allow that person to continue to hurt us. All we're doing is making ourselves miserable. So biblical forgiveness is relinquishing my right to get even, taking it out of my courtroom and putting into God's courtroom and let him deal with the justice. 
So biblical forgiveness is relinquishing my right to get even. Second step is responding to evil with good. At least in part, biblical forgiveness is responding to evil with good. Listen to the words of Christ in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, now just look at those verbs for a minute, those action words, love, do good, bless, pray for. So how do I know? How do we know when we've genuinely forgiven someone? Well, we know when we've genuinely forgiven someone, when we can pray for God to bless that person and we're willing to be a channel of that blessing. Now, again, that's not easy and not an easy place to get to. We might say, I can't do that. Well, we're right. We can't do that. That's why we need Jesus Christ because there's no way we can have that kind of love on our own. Only the love of God can give us that kind of love. I mean, think of all of the mercy. Think of all of the grace. Think of all of the goodness. Think of all that God has done in response to our evil. Think of all the ways that he has responded to each one of our sins. And each and every way he responds to our evil with good. And the only way I can reciprocate that in relationships with others is to keep my focus on that and keep mindful of how much good has been directed my way in spite of all of my evil, in spite of all of my sin and all of my wrong, all of the grace I've received, all of the mercy I've received, all of the goodness of God and the power of God and the wonder of God that I've received. And so we respond to that evil with good as we keep our thoughts and minds on how much God's good has been directed toward me in spite of all of my evil and in spite of all of my wrong. So step number one is relinquishing my right to get even. Step number two is responding to evil with good. Here's a third step. Repeating this process as long as necessary. Repeating the process over and over again as long as necessary. How often do I need to keep releasing my right to get even? How often do I need to keep responding to evil with good? Listen to the words of Matthew chapter 18, 21. We read there, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You know, when you first read that, I mean, Peter's response, Peter's question, it sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? I'm going to forgive him once. I'm going to forgive him twice, three times, four times, five times I'm going to forgive him. Six times I'm going to forgive him. Seven times I'm I'm going to forgive them. I mean, that sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? But look at what Jesus says. He says, not seven times, Peter. No, not seven times. How about, how about 77 times? You know, it kind of sounds like Buzz Lightyear, you know, to infinity and beyond. You know, just keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. Keep on relinquishing my right to get even. Keep on responding to that evil with good. We just keep on doing it. Every time we remember that hurt, we make a willful choice. God, they really hurt me and it still hurts, but I'm choosing to give up my right to get even. I'm choosing to give up my right to seek revenge. I'm choosing to give up my right to wish bad on that person. God, I pray you'll bless their life even though none of us deserve it. Show to them the same mercy and grace you show me every day and allow me to be an instrument of that grace. That's biblical forgiveness. 
not an easy place to get to. That's why we got to repeat the process over and over again, because it seems like one day we're there and the next day we're back and the next day we're there and the next day we're back. And it's an ongoing process. But love is not resentful. Love does not keep a record of wrong. Love forgives. Why? Why does love forgive? Because it's what matters most in life. And without it, nothing we say will matter. Nothing we know or believe or give or accomplish will matter. We say, I don't feel like forgiving. I don't know that any of us feel like forgiving. But love is not an issue so much of feeling as it is an issue of obedience. We do it to get on with our life. We do it because we want to live a life that matters. That's why we do it. I want my conversations to matter. I want what I believe and what I know to matter. I want, I want what I give and what I accomplish to matter. So I live a life of love. I practice forgiveness because I want to live a life that matters. So what's the secret of genuine forgiveness? Well, it really comes down to remembering how much I've been forgiven by God. Remembering what it costs Jesus Christ to forgive me and how much it costs for me to be forgiven. And I wasn't forgiven because I deserved it. I wasn't forgiven because I earned it. I wasn't forgiven because I balanced out my wrong with my good. No, we're forgiven because because of what Jesus Christ did, because of what he accomplished in his coming into this world and becoming one of us so that he could be our substitute, so that he could go to the cross and take the full justice for all the wrongs that we've ever committed. And that's the basis of forgiveness. The more I focus on that, the more I'm able to forgive. And the more I'm able to forgive, the more I practice love. And the more I practice love, the more I live a life that really matters, a life that really matters. So we've been talking about about the actions of love. We've learned that love is kind and love doesn't envy. We've learned that love is humble and love is respectful. We learned that love is not easily angered and that love forgives. And folks, I recognize that none of those things, to, to do those things intentionally and consistently, to choose those, practice those things intentionally and consistently is not easy. It is a work. And it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress for every single one of us. None of us are there yet. But by God's grace, we can grow into that. Now, let's look at another one, another quality. And that is that love speaks the truth. Love speaks the truth. Look again at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. It reads there, love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. In other words, love involves a skill that very few of us, including myself, are good at. And that is confronting someone with the truth in a genuinely loving manner. That is a a skill that most of us aren't very good at. That's a skill that many of us, including myself, really struggle with. But if we want to live a life of love, then sometimes, sometimes we have to say tough things that maybe somebody else doesn't want to hear, but is necessary for them to hear. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head Christ. So the only way to grow up in Christ, the only way to become more Christ-like, to become a better follower of Jesus Christ, is at times we've got to speak the truth in love. And you know, the good news about this speaking the truth in love, we've actually been given a very, very, very 
obvious and great model of that in the Apostle Paul. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter that we've been looking at, is actually right in the middle of two letters that Paul wrote to a church that he founded in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. We know those two letters as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you know that they are filled with tough truth. I mean, the Apostle Paul has to confront one issue after another issue after another, excuse me, <coughs> after another issue, and it's not easy. I mean, these folks at the church at Corinth, they were struggling. I mean, in many ways, they were really kind of messed up. So he wrote two very tough letters dealing with one issue after another in sometimes brutal honesty, speaking the truth in love. And from these two letters that Paul wrote, I think as we look at the broad scope of these two letters, we learn something of the criteria that are necessary to confronting someone in love. Paul did it in these two letters. So what can I learn from what Paul did so that I can do the same is the idea here. So what do we learn? A couple of things. Number one, if we're going to confront somebody in love, criteria number one is I check my motives. I check my motives. Why do I want to talk to this person about this issue? Why do I want to confront them uh, with the truth? I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bad reasons for confronting someone. I might want to confront that person because I'm jealous of them, or maybe I'm envious of them. I may want to confront that person because, um, because I'm irritated by them, or I'm frustrated by them, or I'm annoyed by them. I may want to confront them because I'm angry at them, or maybe I want to get even with them. I may want to point out something wrong in them because it'll somehow, I think, make me feel superior to them. Point being, there's lots of wrong motives to confronting someone. Now, we don't have to be perfect to point out something that needs changing in someone else's life. We don't need to be perfect to speak the truth in love, but we have to start with the right motive. We have to start with the right motive. And what is the right motive? The right motive is to build that person up. The right motive is to help that other person. That's the right motive, and that's the moment motive that we need to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul is kind of winding down that second letter that he writes to these Corinthian followers of Christ, and he has been very blunt with them. He, at times, has been brutally honest with them about things that needed to be changed. And as he comes toward the end of that letter in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 19, he says this. He says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? He says, are you thinking that that's why we wrote this letter? To make ourselves look good? Did you think we wrote this letter? I wrote this letter because it's all about me. He says, no. He says, no, no, no. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. He said, we wrote this letter. I wrote these tough things to you because I want to build you up. I want to see you built up in your faith. I want to see you grow in following Christ and what it means to <coughs> follow Christ. He said, I wanted you to know that you're my beloved. I wrote these tough things to you because I wanted you to know I love you. I spoke the truth and loved you because I love you. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, the Sol the, uh, Solomon writes this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
We point things out in people we deeply care about when we see them heading in the wrong direction. Why? Because we want to see them grow. We want to see them built up. We want to let them know that we love them. And if we love them, we'll care enough to confront them with the truth. We'll care enough to speak the truth in love. So I need to ask myself, if I say this to them, who's getting the most benefit from it? Am I getting the most benefit because I'm venting? Am I getting the most benefit because I'm unloading? Am I getting uh, the most benefit because I'm getting rid of some frustration, because I'll feel better after I unload all of this? Or, or am I saying this for their benefit? Will this build them up? Will they know that I love them? If it's for my benefit, it's not really in love. So let's begin by checking our motives. What are our motives? So essential criteria number one in confronting someone in love is I check my motives. Here's essential, essential criteria number two. I plan my presentation. In other words, I pray it through. I think it through. I, um, I, I don't just, just jump in the pool, you know? I think about what I want to say. I pray through what I want to say way before I say it. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 23, we read these words, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. In other words, if I'm going to be wise, I'm always going to think before I speak. I want my words to be judicious words because I want my words to be persuasive words. Because in speaking the truth and love to that person, I'm trying to persuade them to understand that, excuse me, <clears throat> that I love them and that I want to see them grow, that I really want to see them change. So wise people think before they speak. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul is just beginning this second letter that he writes to this group of believers at Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, he's actually referencing back to the first letter that he wrote to them. And he says something about that first letter. He says this about that first letter. He says, for I wrote to you, past tense, out of much affliction, out of much anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul said, I had some really tough things to write to you in that first letter. You know it. I know it. We both recognize it. But I didn't just fire off a quick text or an unthoughtful tweet. No, I sat down and I prayed it through. I agonized over it. I wept over it. I thought about it. I planned it. I grieved. Why? Because I wanted you to know in the saying of it, I wanted you to understand that I really love you. I wanted you to know the abundant love that I have for you. So when we plan to have a loving confrontation, we need to plan at least three things. We need to plan when we're going to say it, what we're going to say, and how we're going to say it. Both the when, the what, and the how. Listen to these words from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 11, and 12. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Those are great word pictures there in, that, in those two verses. 
So we may be ready to deal with the issue, but what we've got to think through is, are they ready to hear it? If we're going to do this in love, then we think about when is the best timing for them because we're trying to build them up. And we think about what we're going to say to them. Why? Because we're trying to build them up and grow them up. And then in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18, we, verse 18, we read, there is one whose rash words are like a sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. It's not just about the what. It's not just about the when. It's also about the how we say it. We need to make sure that we say it tactfully. We're never persuasive when we're abrasive. So we need to be tactful. We need to say it lovingly. We never want to use that truth that we speak as a club. We need to say it gently. And part of that means we need to be humble. Maybe we even need to qualify our approach. Maybe we need to say to them, I may not have all my facts straight. I may not have the whole story. I may not have the whole picture. My understanding may be limited in this, but I still love you. We see, say to them, I'm not perfect, and I've got struggles in my own life, but I love you enough, and I want to see you grow enough that I have to speak the truth in love. I've got to do it. Somebody said this, truth plus tact plus timing equals transformation. I think that's a great little truth. Truth plus tact plus timing equals transformation. And if our goal is to see them grow, if our goal is to see that person transformed, then I've got to speak the truth, but I've got to bring some tactfulness to it, and I've got to look at my timing as well. It's truth plus tact plus timing that really results in true transformation, in true transformation. So I plan my presentation. Here's a third one, again, that we glean from First and Second Corinthians. I give them affirmation. I give them affirmation. Not only do I check my motives, not only do I plan my presentation, but I give them affirmation. When it comes to speaking the truth in love, we not only need to be realistic, but we also need to be a little optimistic, all right? Both realistic and optimistic, they're both necessary. Proverbs 12, verse 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. In other words, a little word of encouragement in the midst of the truth, a little word of encouragement goes a long, long way. It does wonders. So when we're having a speak the truth and love session with somebody, we need to affirm at least three things. We need to affirm to them that we love them deeply and that we care about them deeply. We need to affirm that we're praying for them, that we've been praying for them, that we'll continue to pray for them, and that we'll help them. We need to affirm that they believe that, that change is, that we believe that change is possible, that things can be different, that things can be better. Maybe think of it this way. Think of it as a sandwich, all right? Now, I don't know, I don't know if in Paul's day they had sandwiches. I know they had bread. I don't know if they had peanut butter and jelly, but I know that they had bread. And when you come to 1 Corinthians and you come to 2 Corinthians, we find something very interesting in these two letters. 1 Corinthians begins with some very strong words of affirmation. 1 Corinthians ends with some very strong words of affirmation. 2 Corinthians begins 
with some very strong words of affirmation. 2 Corinthians ends with some very strong words of affirmation. And in the middle of the affirmations, we find what? Some really tough truth. Some really tough truth. So following Paul's model here in 1 and 2 Corinthians, we sandwich the difficult truth between affirmations, not flattery, all right? True affirmations, honest affirmations, sincere affirmations. So I give that person affirmation. It's a good word that makes him glad. It's a word of encouragement that really does wonders. Here's a fourth thought, a fourth criteria. I risk their rejection. I risk their rejection. In speaking the truth in love, I've got to recognize that I risk their rejection. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 11, and I'm going to read this to you. I think it'll be up on the screen. It's out of the message paraphrase, but it really helps us understand where Paul was at mentally as he was writing these two tough letters. He writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, I know I've distressed you greatly with my letter. And although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel bad now that I see how it's turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. You were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God. And that's what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. Paul says, I knew this wasn't going to be easy. I knew there was risk in doing this. I knew you could reject all of this, but praise God, you didn't reject it. No, you've used it to allow God to begin to transform you. Folks, it's scary to speak the truth in love. We don't know how the person's going to react. We don't know if they're going to get mad. We don't know if they're going to walk out. We don't know what they're going to do. We don't know if they're going to uh, get angry. We don't know if they're going to, um, you know, reject what we have to say. We don't know any of that kind of stuff. We're taking a great risk, but we must be willing to risk the rejection. We may be even be willing to uh, receive that and absorb the initial anger. Why? Because we love that person and we want to see them built up. So here are some questions we need to ask. Who do I need to confront in love? Is there anyone I need to confront in love? Maybe right now there isn't, but maybe there is someone. Who do I need to speak in the truth in love to? Will I love them enough to do it? What excuses have I been using, have I been giving to procrastinate in bringing up these hard issues? Maybe my excuse has been, I don't want to make it worse. Is being silent making it better? Probably not. Maybe the excuse we use, I don't want to be judgmental. It's not about being judgmental. If that's my motive, then don't do it. My motive is love. It's not about being judgmental. It's about being loving. It's about doing what matters most. Maybe I've been using the excuse, I don't know what to say. I don't have all the answers. Well, I don't think God asked us to have all the answers. He just asks us to trust and obey him. And it's his Holy Spirit, and it's his word, and it's his power where we find answers and they find answers. And that brings transformation. God hasn't called us to solve everyone's problems, but we do have to love them enough to see the problem, to biblically and wisely point out the problem and care enough to be a part of the solution and not just be quiet. Maybe we've been using the excuse, it's none of my business. And maybe there are times when it really is none of my business. And I've got to realize that, right? But maybe other times, in saying it's none of my business, what I'm really saying is, I don't want to make it my business. I really don't care. 
I just really don't care to get involved. I really don't love because love sometimes demands that we say, this is wrong. This needs to stop. Let me love you. Let me love you. So love, love rejoices with the truth. It's what matters most in life, and it's what makes our life matter. So what have we learned from 1 Corinthians 13? We've learned that unless we live a life of love, nothing we say will matter, nothing we know will matter, nothing we believe will matter, nothing we give will matter, nothing we accomplish will matter. We've learned that love is a command, that love is a choice, that love is a conduct and a commitment. We've learned that love, we've learned some things about what love does and doesn't do. We've looked at some of the qualities that we find here in verses four to six, and we've discovered that they're all verbs. What are verbs? Verbs are action words. So we've learned something about the actions of love. And we recognize that even though love may at times be hard to define, and even though love at times is defined in all kinds of different ways by our culture, we learn that biblical love is easily recognized by the way it acts, by the, by the actions of love. So we come to verse 7 and 8, and in verse 7 and 8, we find five additional ways in which love acts, ways that we don't have time to talk about today, but let's just touch them very briefly. Look at verse 7 and 8. Love bears all things. The word bear there doesn't mean expose as in bear. It means to hold up as in bear. It's the idea of supporting. It's the idea of protecting. Love always acts in a way that supports. Love always acts in a way that protects. Love believes all things. In other words, love always, uh, always believes that because of God's grace and because of God's wisdom and because of God's power, that there can be transformation. There can be change. Love believes all things because God is able to do all things. Love hopes all things. It hopes all things. Love is a way of looking to God's future and seeing a better day, seeing a brighter moment, seeing transformation, seeing change. Love, true love, biblical love, keeps us from, give, from giving up. Love hopes all things. And then love endures all things. In other words, love's, uh, love, uh, biblical love allows us to remain loving even in the most adverse circumstances and even to transform the situation by the enduring love endures all things. And then finally, at the beginning of verse 8, love never ends. Love never ends. Why does love never end? Because it's one of the most important things in life. Because love is God's primary focus. It's why he sent his son. It's why he saves you and me. It's why he gives us his word, gives us his Holy Spirit. It's God's primary focus. Therefore, it should be my primary focus. It's what matters most in life, in life and it's what makes my life matter. What makes my life matter? Now, I want to make, um, this kind of personal, all right? And so we're going to do a little something here. In just a moment, we're going to put the verses to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through the beginning of verse 8 up on the screen. And we're going to read through them together, out loud together. And what we're going to see as we look at those on the screen, there are a bunch of blank spaces, all right? And what I want us to do is this. As we read through that out loud together, every time we come to a blank space, I want each of us to read our first name into that. So don't read my first name into that, okay? 
I can only take so much, okay? So we're each going to read our own first name into that, okay? So we're going to kind of do this a little slow. We're not going to do it real fast because the idea here isn't speed. The idea is to kind of personalize this and, and sort of make it sink in. So we're all going to kind of look up at the screen, all right? And everywhere there's a blank, all right, we're going to put in our first name and we're going to say it all out loud together. So let's begin. If Mark speaks in the tongues of men and of angels, but has not love, Mark is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if Mark has prophetic powers and understands all mysteries and all knowledge, and if Mark has all faith so as to remove mountains, but has not love, Mark is nothing. If Mark gives away all he has, and if Mark delivers up his body to be burned, but has not love, Mark gains nothing. Mark is patient and kind. Mark does not envy or boast. Mark is not arrogant or rude. Mark does not insist on his own way. Mark is not irritable or resentful. Mark does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Mark bears all things. Mark believes all things. Mark hopes all things. Mark endures all things. Mark's love never ends. I don't know about you, but I got a long way to go. <laughs> and I look at that and I think, wow, you got to be kidding, right? But then I'm reminded of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In Galatians, 20, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first quality? Love. So in other words, think with this, about this with me for a moment. Not only, not only has God shown us his love through his Son, and not only has God given us instruction, practical instruction about love, but to top it off, he has given us his indwelling and filling Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of love in our lives. So we've got God's example. We've got the instruction of God's word. We've got the power of God's Holy Spirit. And greater is he that is in us than he that is what? In the world. So even though we got a long way to go, and even though there's a lot of progress yet to be made, by God's example, through God's word, and by God's empowering, indwelling, filling Holy Spirit, we can practice biblical love. We can do what matters most in life. And you and I can live lives that really matter. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for these instructions, these truths from your word. We thank you, Father, for um, uh, the fact that you you have so perfectly modeled to us what it means to really love, what biblical life looks like, the actions of biblical love. You, you've done it in, in everything you've done. You've done it in everything that you've said. You, you, you've done it in everything that you continue to do. You constantly model your love for us. And then you're so gracious to give us down-to-earth instructions to say, hey, this is, this is how it works. This is what it's all about. This is why it's so important. And then on top of it off, to top it all off, you say, hey, and I've, I've filled you with my spirit. He dwells within you. And the one that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. 
And part of the fruit that he is producing in your life is love. So Father, we, we stand here today a people that need to grow, a people that need to change, a people that continue to need to be transformed, to become more and more what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But Lord, we are encouraged people today because we have your example, we have your word, and we have your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.